If you want to be turning to the book of Ephesians, we'll kind of start back with where we were last week talking about a spiritual self-identity. I appreciate the invitation to be here and uh, the kindness that everybody shows us while we're here. Uh, some unusual uh, time off for us has occurred. Uh, today is Jackie's birthday. She'll hang me for telling you that. Uh, and uh, we're going to leave after services tonight and go down to Lake Oconee and visit with the grandkids at a lake cabin that they have access to. So uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I might fish. I might ride a jet ski. She's going to play with grandbabies. <laughs> and if they'll let me take a grandbaby on a jet ski, I'll play with grandbabies too. <laughs> but uh, we're going to leave right after services and get to spend a couple of days uh, just exclusively with uh, our friends-in-law, that's Tyler's mom and dad, and then our grandchildren and our children. So we uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here, but if we look like we vapored right after services, we're not trying to hi-hat anybody, we're just easing that way. Um, If you start out reading the book of Ephesians, the first thing that strikes me, and, and, and I do encourage you, uh, kind of a hobby horse I've been riding lately. Please don't be this person that says, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year and read just little sections. Try to do some intentional Bible study. I'm going to read the book of Ephesians nine times this month. Because if you were to sit down and type it out or had it on a Bible a program on your computer and you eliminated the verses and formatted it like a textbook rather than the columns, you'd get about two and a half typed pages in 11-point type. It's not, it's not very long at all. It was not originally written in chapters. It was not originally written in verses. And a lot of times the verse and chapter divisions are arbitrary, and we read there, and we stop. Uh, I did a study in graduate school called Reader Bias Perception of Textual Format. Now take the exact same two passages, I think, for the, for the experiment. I did John chapter 9 and gave it to children just like it's written in the Bible and then typed it out like it was written in a textbook. Uh, the children who read the textbook format scored 10 points higher per child on the test that we gave them afterwards. They rated it as an easy, short read. The children who did it with the traditional columns, verse by verse, said it was difficult, it was long, and uh, they didn't score as well on the test. I did the same thing with uh, Job chapter 41 with an adult population. And so when you read your Bible, try to ignore the fact that some translator separated and read it for the big thought. Now, I think it's okay to go back and dissect Scripture. I think it's okay to go back and pull out pieces, but I don't think you need to do that till you get, till you get the big picture. Uh, that's not the way we read any other written communication. When you get a text message from somebody and it says, Dear Bob, you don't do a word study of dear. There are two words in the English language that sound exactly the same. One is an ungulate that uh, puts on antlers and drops them every year. And there's another word that means beloved. We just read it in context. And so please, when you're doing your Bible study, try to read for a holistic thought and then the things that you don't understand then you go back and you define those words. So when you read the book of Ephesians holistically, what you start out with is the impression that God's doing something with humanity and it is intentional. 
God's got a purpose. If you look in chapter 1, you'll find purpose, predestined. And, and by the way, every time you read predestined in the New Testament, think in the terms predetermined. Predetermined is different than predestined. Predestined means I plugged you in and you're a robot and you're going to do this and this is going to happen. Predetermined means if I get A and I get B, then I've determined I'll get C. Uh, on our 25th anniversary, and I didn't deer hunt when we got married. We got married December 22nd, 1984. And so I didn't realize that that little event was going to interfere with some prime whitetail hunting in northern Alabama. But on our 25th anniversary, Jackie said we need to A, go on a cruise, B, the cruise needs to be to Hawaii, and C, it needs to be where that volcano's at. There's not a deer on that island. There's black-tailed deer on the big island, but there's not a deer on that island. I already checked. I know. And there's absolutely not a deer in the Pacific Ocean. So the day before I got on that boat, I went deer hunting. And I predetermined that anything that walked down that trail was going to the house. Now, I didn't cause that little buck to walk down that trail. I didn't make him walk down that trail. But the fact that he showed up on that trail, he's on the wall at the house. We call him the Hawaii buck. Okay, now he's not a very big little deer, but he, I had to kill a deer before I got on that boat. I, I lost my mind. And God said, I've predetermined that when these things happen, I'll make these other things happen. And so God is intentional, purpose, according to the pledge of his will. He predetermined according to the good purpose of his will. Look at verse 10. We'll start in verse 9. He purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he would gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth in Him. God said, my plan has always been to unite the things of heaven and the things of earth. God's plan was to unite the Jews and the Gentiles and make from them one new man. God's intention was to unite Himself and people after we were separated by sin. God foreknew that when He made man, man would sin and man would have separation. And before God said, let there be light, God had already planned for a reunification with mankind. So as you read in this text, think in terms of this is God's plan, this is God's purpose, this is what God is doing with mankind and then when you get to the end of what we, we have in our English Bibles, uh, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One translation says, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So God's got this overarching plan. God's got this intentional stuff that he's doing with mankind. And, and the fulfillment, it fulfills everything in every way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played with freezing temperatures and, and ice before. But if you fill a milk jug up with water and you freeze it, when you cut that milk jug off that ice, every nook and every cranny of that milk jug has been fulfilled in every way. You fill that thing up and it's got a handle because the water went in that empty spot. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that God wanted to happen with men. 
And the fulfillment of that was with this, in this entity called the church. And the church unites people and people. And the church unites God and people. So that's the intention of, of the book of Ephesians, is to demonstrate to this audience that God is intentional. And notice, if you will, sometimes when you read the book of Ephesians, how many times he uses the word spiritual or heavenly. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, that you might know the fullness of him in heavenly places. You might know the, the spiritual blessings. It, it's full of spiritual, heavenly, heavenly, spiritual, spiritual, heavenly. And by the time he gets to talking about what God intended for us to do, uh, he brings together the Jews, he brings together the Gentiles into one man. And then about chapter 4, he says, this is how people who are part of the new humanity have to behave. Your identity, how we see ourselves, is as people in Christ. And so in chapter 4, he says, I want you to walk worthy of this label you've been given. I want you to walk worthy of this calling that you've been called. And, and he does some, some pretty straightforward ethical stuff. He, he talks about that, that we don't lie to each other, that people who are stealing stop stealing, uh, that people don't fight and bicker and we put away harsh language. Uh, he talks about uh, using the gifts that God has given us in, in order that we might serve Him, in order that we might make the body grow. And, and as he begins to talk about that, he then begins to talk about relationships. And in chapter 5, he talks about husbands and wives. Then he'll talk about parents and children. And then he'll talk about servants and masters. Now, if you'll notice when he has this discussion about husbands and wives, and we get into some trouble sometimes when, when we read this against our own backdrop. Before he says, wives, submit to your husbands, and before he says, husbands, love your wives, notice what he says prior to that. Verse 15. See that you walk circumspectly. That's a fancy word to say with wisdom. Don't behave yourself like a fool. Don't act like somebody who doesn't have good sense. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Make sure you make the best of your opportunities. So don't be unwise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Your focus on the planet, your orientation for how you should be living, should really be only focused on what is the will of the Lord. How can I live in such a way that I fulfill in my life the will of the Lord? Now, if I'm distracted by the physical stuff, if I'm distracted by the stuff of this world, then the, the will of the Lord kind of takes second place. Um, and he says you've got to be aware of that on a conscious level. Don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he gives an example. Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, you, know, you can fill yourself up with two things. You can fill yourself up with, with pleasure. With, with wine, and if you fill yourself up with wine, eventually that will lead to dissipation. It'll lead to foolish behavior. It'll lead to out-of-control behavior. Um, interesting when you deal with people with the police. Uh, alcohol lowers your inhibitions, lowers your ability, but raises your confidence. 
And so you have a person who can't do as well and thinks he's evil can evil on a motorcycle. That's a bad comment. So you see, if you get filled with this stuff, it leads to out-of-control behavior. It leads to dissipation. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. The dichotomy here is choosing what you're going to fill your life up with. Will the Lord or will of the world? You're going to be full of wine or full of the Spirit. Be a spiritual person. And people who are full of the Spirit do what? They speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of your reverence for God. Now, I know if you've been to church more than four times, you've heard this verse as a verse that talks about why we don't use a piano in church. Read it in its context. If I'm not full of wine, but I'm full of the Spirit, I've got a thankful, praise-oriented heart that focuses toward God. I express that thankfulness, I express that praise by singing, and I can make an argument that it's a cappella singing. But at the same time, I'm singing, I'm giving thanks to God, in the same verse that tells us to sing, in the same verse that tells us to thank God, tells us to submit to one another. And when we read that verse by verse by verse, we miss that connection. If I'm filled with the Spirit, I sing praises to God, I've got a heart full of thankfulness, and I submit. And then when he talks about husbands and wives, and parents and children, and servants and masters, you know what the overarching theme of all those discussions are? Submission. You can't be a spiritual person unless you can master submission, service, and forgiveness. Submission is how I see myself. Service is how I see you. And forgiveness is understanding the dynamic that takes place between me and God. And if God is willing to reset me every day, I should be willing to reset you every day. Submission, service, and forgiveness. And so when he begins to talk about the dynamics of these relationships, when he talks about wives and husbands, listen to these verses and listen for submission. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. You understand that this description is that Jesus was submissive to the needs of the church. Now, he says, wives, you submit to your husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ. But the reason the church has no problem submitting to Christ is that Christ's behavior toward the church was absolutely selfless. And if we're going to fulfill what we're supposed to be doing as spiritual leaders and spiritual men, it's not about having power or authority. It's about having influence. 
And Christ was submissive to the needs of the church. Dying on the cross didn't do anything for him. Dying on the cross wasn't his own benefit. Dying on, on the cross didn't do anything about his sins. He didn't have any. Everything Christ did was giving. And fellas, there's a difference between giving in and giving up. And giving. One is uh, kind of, okay, I'll do it. But I don't want to. It builds resentment. It builds regret. And the other is, I'm treating you with submission and service. And Christ was submissive to the needs of the church. And fellas, if you want your wives to be submissive, you just quit acting selfish and they won't have any trouble doing what you ask them to do because you're not going to ask them to do something that's selfish. You think about the people you trust and you think about the people that you don't trust. You don't trust people who are selfish and you inherently, implicitly, and explicitly trust people that you don't think are selfish. If you're having a, a, a submission dynamic difficulty in your house, somebody's broadcasting on, hey, I'm being selfish level, and it makes the other person retract. Christ was submissive to the needs of the church, and the church was submissive to the loving authority of Christ. And so he's talking about the dynamic between people, and the key to that dynamic is submission. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long upon the earth. Children learn to be submissive. Because when they learn to be submissive to their parental authority, they learn to be submissive to civil authority, and they learn to be submissive to heavenly authority. And if you don't teach it at this level, it doesn't transfer to this level. And so he's talking to the children about simply being submissive. And you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. See, the job of a dad is not to be Mr. Intimidator. The job of a dad is not to frighten his children. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up and nurture and admonition. It, it's, if you look at the, the EPAC test that uh, Stephen Glenn did, you have permissiveness and you have control, you have hostility and you have love. When you have nurture and admonition, you get a mixture of permissiveness and control balanced by love with the absence of hostility. And again, it's about being submissive. I'm going to do for you what you need, not what you deserve. And does the same thing with servants and masters. And, and you bond servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With respect and trembling and sincerity of heart, the same way you would treat Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Paul says, look, if you're a slave, and Paul didn't endorse or condemn slavery. Paul said, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, here's how you cope with it. You find yourself in a position in life and you deal with that person in the same way you deal with Christ. If Christ were your boss, if Christ were your teacher, if Christ were your master, how would you treat him? And you do this out of a goodness of your heart. You do this not to, to impress people, not, not just eye service, but because it comes from a place of motivation where as a spiritual person, I serve Christ. And how do I serve Christ? By serving you. If I'm not willing to serve you, I'm not serving Christ. And then he turns back around and you masters do the same things to them. You treat them as if Christ was working for you. 
And if Christ was working for you, would you be harsh? Would you be threatening? He said, look, you've got a master too. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. God doesn't care whether you're the master or you're you're the slave. God doesn't care whether you're the rich or the poor. God looks at you and says, you know, you may think you have authority on this earth, but, you know, you're under my authority. And how have I dealt with you? That's the way you should deal with other people. And so he gives this dynamic of interaction. And a lot of people, especially in Ephesus, where where this was written to, were struggling with the dichotomy of the flesh and the spirit and the spirit and the flesh. Uh, If you read Herman Ritterbos' book, The Theology of Paul, um, Ritterbos talks from a a standpoint of, of the ideas of Jewish eschatology. And eschatology was to study the last things. And there was a group of people who had a, an absolute split between the spiritual and the physical. And you were in the physical world, and the only way to get out of the physical world was to climb a ladder by brute force and ascend your way into heaven. And they were works-oriented, meritocracy, and it was all about the things that you did. And then there are a group of people who thought that you were here and you could reach some point of enlightenment. Sometimes that's mixed into Gnosticism. Sometimes it's mixed into Jewish asceticism. But, but you had special knowledge and, and you knew the names of angels and you knew these myths and you had this secret knowledge and somehow you could be beamed from the, spirit, from the physical world to the spiritual world like on Star Trek. And what Paul is writing about is what the Jewish eschatology referred to as the already, but the not yet. What he was talking about was it's not a dichotomy between physical and spiritual, but you are a spiritual creature in a physical world. Then we get to this section about armor. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And stand therefore with with truth around your waist and a breastplate of righteousness and your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and take the shield of faith which is able to quench the fiery darts and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And we read that passage, and and because of, I guess because we're Americans, we get really excited about all that army stuff. You know, I don't know how many times I've been asked, Lonnie, we want you to speak at a youth rally, we want you to do Ephesians 6, we want you to bring your SWAT gear, we want you to bring your your vest and your helmet and your special boots, and we want you to talk about weapons and armor. Be real careful with this verse. Paul uses this imagery because it's probably the best imagery that he had to use. But he's not talking about going to war. He's not talking about us fighting anybody. What he's describing here is how a spiritual creature walks around in a physical world. And the imagery that he uses is helmets and breastplates 
don't get caught up in that. What does the belt and the chest plate and the helmet and the boots and the shield and the sword represent? Truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, and the word. But if you get locked into helmets and breastplates and swords and weapons, we, we almost get the idea that we're on the aggressive. Uh, on another one of our adventures, Jackie decided we need to go on another cruise. And this time we went to Alaska. Alaska's a cool place, literally and physically, figuratively. And so as we're prowling around Alaska, there's this big poster, and it shows these guys holding starfish that are bigger than a large pizza. And Jackie, number one, loves photography, and number two, she's very kinesthetic. She likes to touch stuff. She doesn't want to do anything that you can't touch. And if you can be interactive, she's all about it. She'll overcome fears. She'll overcome her hesitancies. And she said, there's a thing here where we could go touch these starfish. I said, okay, what's the deal with that? She says, well, it's called snorkeling. So I've never snorkeled in my life, and the first place I'm going to learn is in Alaska? There are things in the waters outside of Alaska that eat people my size for snacks. Okay, and we're going to get in the cold waters of the bay and paddle around and look at these giant starfish and, and hold them. And so they made us put on these suits. They took us to this little trailer, and, and we had these neoprene suits. And I mean, they're, they're tight-fitting. And, and I, I, I busted my lip trying to get the thing on. I was pulling, pow, and I popped myself. Had little boots, had the suit, had the jacket, had the gloves, had the little... I walked out of there with an intense desire to fight crime. I was in this black and blue suit. And then they put this little mask on me with a straw that went from my mouth up. And they said, now you're going to get in the water. The water's going to come into your suit. And your body temperature will regulate the temperature of the water. And you'll be warm in the cold Alaskan water. You can paddle around there. And the suit had a flotation system in it. So you really didn't have to be a good swimmer. The suit itself floated. And you can stick your head underwater. And the straw, the snorkel sticks up and you can breathe. So I'm a land walker and an air breather, and I'm now in this separate environment, and I can survive. Now, when you get out of the water, you can't get that thing off because it's stuck to you. And they're looking, I think the girl might have been 27 years old. And she said, we can take this warm water and pour it down your suit, and it'll loosen it up. I was a little uncomfortable with a 27-year-old pouring water down my wetsuit. I said, no, I think I'll work my way out of this. So I'm over here fighting. Well, she snuck up behind me and went, and it loosened it right up. She said, how does that feel? I said, that feels wonderful. But the bad news is, in Kentucky, we're married. But that's a, that's a different story. Anyway, so we had to wear these boots and these pants and these jackets and these gloves and these masks and the snorkel because I was in a foreign environment. It was a survival suit. You take a Roman soldier and you move him from Rome and you drop him in Palestine. You drop him in Ephesus. You drop him in Corinth. You drop him in Jerusalem. You're a Roman, foreign occupying power and when you step outside your dorm every day, you don't wear your robe and your sandals. Because you don't live here. When a Roman soldier stepped outside in Palestine, 
He was in hostile territory. And he had a helmet and a breastplate and special shoes and a shield and a weapon. And Paul says this is the survival suit for spiritual creatures in a physical world. If you're going to have a spiritual self-identity and you're going to survive righteousness, peace, salvation, faith, and truth, and that's not about going to war with anybody. Please listen to me carefully. The liberal politicians of this world are not my enemies. The LGBTQ movement not my enemies. The same-sex marriage crowd my enemies. The humanistic psychologists who want to teach that your impulses can, they're not my enemies. The evolutionists who are in the schools teaching that, that we came from a primordial ooze, they're not my enemies. They are victims of my enemy. And if my enemy can get me to declare war on them and fight with them, and hate them, then he gets them and me. We, we skipped a verse. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, therefore is your battle is not against anything flesh. The warfare you're fighting is not about attacking people. You don't take this sword and go hack people up with it. You don't take this sword and declare, let's, let's argue, let's fight, let's debate. You take this sword because you're fighting on a battlefield that is spiritual. And your adversary and your enemy, your warfare, is not against people. And if we ever lose our focus that this is a survival suit for spiritual creatures in a physical world, and we lose the focus of the battle is spiritual. We're lost. Because if I take the literal helmet, breastplate, boots, and sword, and shield, that makes me want to be aggressive. That makes me want to fight. That makes me want to look at things I can cut with my sword. It's not about warfare. It's about survival. And how do I survive as a spiritual creature in a physical world? Because my enemy's not physical. My enemy is spiritual. And the spiritual nature of that fight is that I've got to find some things, and notice these are not things that you do. These are qualities you possess. Peace, righteousness, salvation, faith, and the Word. There's not a verb here. 
It's about what we are rather than what we do. And when the emphasis becomes this is what you do and what you do defines what you are, then it's so easy to get us distracted. It's so easy to get us to take those, those images of that warfare stuff and just go to war. You know any churches that have ever split? You, you know any two brethren that have argued about anything? You know folks who won't talk to each other because of a, of a difference in theology? If the spiritual people can't get along with each other, the devil doesn't have to worry about us converting the world. The devil doesn't have to worry about us changing anything in our community. I would like to think that driving between my house and Florence, Alabama, in the 75 churches you pass, is because our brethren are really, really, really evangelistic. But you know those buildings aren't full. They've got a handful of folks from this camp and a handful of folks from this camp and a handful of folks from this camp and a handful of folks with this label and a handful. We've taken literally the fact that we're wearing armor and we're fighting and we wear each other out. You do not wrestle against flesh and against blood. People aren't your enemy. Now, there are things people do and they're victims of your enemy, and, and, and what they're doing is wrong. It's going to cost them their soul. It's going to cost them their salvation. It's going to keep them separated from God. But the fact that they're separated from God doesn't make them my enemy. The, the fact that they're separated from God makes them somebody I need to be attending to. I need to be giving first spiritual first aid to. I need to be triaging those folks. But if my intent is to always to do battle with those folks and to always be aggressive and always be confrontive and always be assertive, then the devil's got me fighting a flesh and blood battle when the real thing is a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And because of that, because of that hierarchy, because of that tier level of different spiritual things, I've got to have truth. I've got to have righteousness. I've got to have salvation. I've got to have faith. I've got to have the Word of God. Because the only way a spiritual creature survives in a physical world and spiritual self-identity is about understanding the rules of engagement. And the rules of engagement are, I'm not out to defeat anybody. I'm out to survive against my adversary, the devil. And it's, and it's interesting to me that the devil is described as an adversary by, by Peter. And how does he describe him? As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You ever been in the woods with a predator? You ever thought you're being stalked by a predator? I was climbing in Colorado years ago, climbing on Lumpy Ridge with Colorado Mountain School. And you go to a big climb, then instead of just going out there like an old boy from Alabama and having a guidebook, you spend half your life looking for a place to climb because those rocks are massive. So I hired this kid out of a Colorado Mountain School. And he's going to take me to the spot, 
He's going to lead the climb. I'm going to clean the climb. And then, because you know, if you get up in a multi-pitch climb, you get 600 feet off the deck and you get off route, you get in the deep water fast. And so I hired this, this guy from Colorado Mountain School. We're climbing. I think he's a 26-year-old kid named Celine. Don't know why you'd name a boy Celine, but they, anyway. So we're, we're walking. And I got the idea real quick that he was not a hunter. He did not approve hunting. He did not like the fact that we ate animals. I said, well, if they didn't want us to eat them, they, wouldn't, they shouldn't have made them out of meat, you know. And so we're walking out there. And I said, well, you know, I said, I really not trying to punch your buttons here. I said, but if, if you strictly believe in evolution and we're just all animals, I'm the top of the food chain. He stopped, turned and looked at me and said, you're not out here, you're not. And you know, he's right, they have grizzly bears in Colorado. They have mountain lions in Colorado. And all of a sudden the fact was, I'm out here and the most dangerous thing I have in my backpack is a rope. And I can't outrun this 26-year-old. <laughs> and it was kind of a chilling thought that if something, if a predator comes out of these woods, I'm not really equipped to fight one. Your devil, the devil, your adversary, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places is walking around like a stalking predator seeking whom he may devour. Now that's you. That's your wife. That's your children. That's your grandchildren. That's the neighbor you live next door to that you hadn't asked to come here. That's the guy you talk to when you buy your groceries and the, the kid who works the counter where you pump your gas. And that's that gay kid at the office. And that's that flaming liberal at, at, at the, the bank. And if we can quit putting those labels on people and recognize that they are predator food, that the same predator, my adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He'll eat you as well as he'll eat them. He's already chewing on them. And until we change our mindset that it's not us against them, it's us against him, the predator, the devil stalker, the lion. And his intention is to do us irrevocable spiritual harm and separate us from our God. If we ever get it that we are spiritual creatures in a physical world, it does what Paul has asked us to do. It changes the way husbands look at wives. It changes the way wives look at husbands. It changes the way children obey parents. It changes the way parents parent their children. It changes the way bond servants deal with their masters. It changes the way masters deal with their servants. Because we recognize I'm not in competition with anybody here. I'm not an adversary against any other human. My adversary is spiritual. My adversary is the devil. My adversary is the one who rebelled against God and because of his rebellion cause sin to enter the world. And his job is to separate us from God. And if he can get us to fight with each other, either the church fight each other, 
Husbands and wives fight each other. Children rebel against their parents. Or get us just to fight with the people who disagree with us on theology or economics or politics or morals. If he can just get us to think this warfare is flesh and blood, then he wins. He gets us all. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And because of this, therefore, you need this survival suit. Peace, truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, and the sword. The sword's to protect you against the predator, not to fight the other people.